millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They become pawns in the greater games and they're unable to decipher what's happening. The operational head of this, if I may call them the mafia, are, are the military. So if you're in the military, it's like living in standard deviation. What went wrong for Imran Khan? Historically, they've, they've used Islam as a narrative to bring people together. People who have money can have access to healthcare and, and education. It's hard to articulate the kind of destruction the IMF program brings in for the masses. The common narrative, of course, is that the Americans forced him out. Imran Khan's policies were capitalist and neoliberal as they get. These past few weeks in Pakistan have been a roller coaster ride. We have seen the continued brazen army interference in elections that for so long has earned the country the dubious title of possessing a sham democracy. The country's elected leader, Imran Khan, is languishing in prison on what are trumped-up charges and hundreds of his party members have been chased, arrested and incarcerated by what can only be described as the apparatus of a deep state. Election day was a sham and it seems the army's designated successors are about to take their positions. But often what is on the surface may conceal deeper facts. Today we have political analyst Kashif Gilani from Islamabad to discuss the situation with us. Brother Kashif Gilani, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. And thank you for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you with us. Now I know you've recently come from Islamabad and uh, it's really a pleasure to, to, have you, uh, to have you join us today. Now Kashif, let's start with the current situation. Pakistan is going through a turbulent week, as I said. Uh, Imran Khan's uh, PTI party was not allowed to contest the recent election, so effectively a band of independents stood to represent uh, his ticket uh, in the parliamentary elections. And they received the greatest share of the vote, or at least the seat share, in parliament. Can you take me through some of the attempts uh, in this past week to thwart, to... Uh, become a to to challenge uh, his party or at least his independence. Sure. 
So this is something that happens almost in every election, that there's a favorite party of of the booming elite, in my call them, the establishment. And then they use multiple tactics to make sure that the people that they want in power come in power. So uh, Imran uh, had his, had, had his uh, share of uh, the favor of the establishment, but in recent times, he's fallen out, share, uh, out of their favor. And uh, they've used multiple tactics to discredit him or make sure that he doesn't form the government. It began with... Uh, then pressurizing people who were within his party to leave and form another party called uh, Ristekam Pakistan. Uh, and then they they used um, uh, pressure tactics to make sure that people who would who wanted to uh, take his party ticket for the election do not uh, and opt for other parties. And then there was uh, uh, election day rigging where people were people did not uh, didn't allow them to. Uh, has uh, online uh, jalsas or uh, congregate. Uh, so any political uh, work that goes on through the election, they were denied that mostly. Yeah. And then on top of that, uh, they were... So in Pakistan, you, you, need, uh, you need a symbol to vote. Why? Why do you need a symbol? So it, it's just a procedural thing. You stamp the symbol, uh, and that's how they count the vote. So they don't want the name of the person you're voting for or the name of the party. So it's a it's a symbol that you vote on. Yeah. And because of some legal issues, and that we could get into later as well, uh, they were denied this. And the optics definitely look really bad, even though there's legal merit in the case how, how it was laid out. And I, I would say that... Uh, PTI were lazy in fighting their cases in the Supreme Court, but there's clear reason for them to deny it uh, by the establishment. Uh, they, they, they've been so the reason used to deny them. They've they've been doing this throughout their their, their over two two decades of history. They've been conducting elections like this, but this became relevant because the establishment didn't want them in power. And then uh, even during the election uh, on the on the very election day. Uh, they uh, pe- so people finance election campaigns. Those uh, people who, who would finance PTI's uh, election campaigns, they weren't allowed to give. The, they, it would make difficult for them to give them money so that they could transport voters from their houses to to the voting stations. Uh, and uh, then uh, the the controversy that's become really popular is that from every. Uh, constituency, they have this form 45 where they count the total votes and then they 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 are compiled and posted on form 47. So there's a discrepancy on who won on form 45 and who uh, was eventually considered the winner on form 47. So it's it's very clear that the state did make work and made sure that Imran Khan doesn't form a government in this election. And the internet went down on election day. Yes, yeah, that day. happened too. Uh, and why? What was the uh, rationale behind bringing down the internet? So generally, it's done so that people do not coordinate, or if there's some, if something's happening, people don't post it online uh, very quickly. So generally, that's it. Uh, it uh, it was the percep- perception is that's why it was uh, put in place. But uh, this isn't something that's uncommon in Pakistan. Whenever there's congregations, the government makes an ex- excuse for a security threat and uh, takes down the cell phone service and the internet service throughout the country. So it's not something very uncommon. But uh, the optics definitely look really bad for the establishment. And uh, that's something I think we should get into as well. That, yeah. Why was 
Imran Khan deny this? And why was he popular in the first place? And this isn't something, this popularity isn't something that's a stable uh, reality. It was, he was exceptionally unpopular uh, one and a half years ago. Yeah. And people thought his politics is over. And now he is probably more more popular than he was in during 2018 election. And there, there's a, there's an undercurrent in, in the Pakistani society that defines who becomes popular and who doesn't. Uh, and I, I think uh, that's uh, that's something interesting that we should go into. And uh, I should preface this with, with this, that my intention to come here and talk about these things is that uh, I've noticed that, especially the Muslim boys, they... Uh, they become pawns in the greater games and they're unable to decipher what's happening. And uh, this is something that the the Muslim voice needs to uh, be capable of. Otherwise, they will always be used in these streams of uh, narratives that are popular. So uh, if we are able to present a framework that's useful for people, even if they disagree with the framework, they would be able to have a, have a structured thinking, inshallah, uh, that would help people understand the Pakistani situation. Fantastic. So you've used the term establishment, uh, elites in that answer. Who are the establishment? Who are the elites? So uh, this uh, this is something that we need to go back into history to understand. Uh, Pakistan has um, a hist- uh, Pakistan has a colonial history where uh, it inherited certain institutions from the British India. Uh, and those institutions are free in number mostly, which is uh, uh, the Pakistan military, the civil bureaucracy, and, and the political uh, structure, the parliament. Uh, in Pakistan's case, the, the, the political, uh, the people who, who were considered the founders of Pakistan, they did not have a political base in this part of the world. They were mostly based on the So they, they were very weak when Pakistan was... Uh, was created and uh, the military was always stronger uh, along with the civil bureaucracy so that's the military has eventually become uh, the establishment and that's partly because this part of the world in this part of the world the military owned most of the land Uh, the British had given uh, people who retired from the military who who they would they they had been constructed for World War 1 and 2 they retired them here in this part of Pakistan and they were given land and uh, the major cities that the British developed here were also cantonments. So the military was uh, disproportionately powerful in this part of the world anywhere when Pakistan and Samar. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the civil bureaucracy uh, leaned towards the British uh, in, uh, during and after, its, uh, after the inception and the world was moving towards an American world order where uh, post-World War II, America had, had become powerful in, uh, in the international circles and it was dictating who gets to keep its colonies and not, and who doesn't. So in such a situation, uh, there's a lot of uh, academic work to prove that America in, uh, put forward its, uh, its soldier reform within Pakistan. And those soldier reforms disproportionately made the military elite even more powerful than the rest of the institution, the colonial institutions Pakistan had inherited. Uh, but I wouldn't say the elites and the brooding elites is just a military. So it's a nexus of uh, businessmen, uh, uh, judges, 
people in the the civil bureaucracy, especially the military generals, uh, and some landlords too, who who hold uh, huge uh, pieces of land. Uh, and and a, par- a party, uh, I would say, uh, are politicians and um, and businessmen at the same time. So, so these are the ruling elites. But at the center of the, the operational head of this, uh, if I may call them the mafia, are, are are the military. So, and and when we're talking about the military, we're talking about Bajwa, Munir, you know, the, the heads of the military, yeah. right? Okay. Now, um, how unified is that political elite? Because you suggested earlier on that uh, those who come through these ele- through this electoral process are the ones who are favoured by the political elites. So do the political elites always uh, limit themselves to a singular party and candidate? Or how, does, how does that play out in, in the practice? So, so it's not always one candidate. So, uh, let, let me uh, let me tell you what the what the preferences preferences of the establishment or the elites are, and then we'll be able to see how uh, what choices do they opt for. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for for the ruling elite, there there are certain uh, pillars of their decision making. One of them has been aligned with uh, aligning with the U.S. So, whoever. Uh, the Americans think whatever policy the Americans have for this region and whoever can uh, implement that, those policy uh, prescriptions is uh, usually becomes favored. And then there, there are local dynamics that, uh, that determine who will be uh, favored. And then in recent times, the military doesn't want to put all their best on one horse. So they want a hung parliament, a coalition government anyway, so that they, they have more room you know, to maneuver. So they don't want anyone to be, to uh, to become too popular. They tried that with Nawaz Sharif, and uh, it didn't play out well uh, when he had a two-third majority. So, uh, so, so what are, what are those things? Well, the first thing is they want uh, see they want to align with the U.S. and that's the history of Pakistan. Pakistan has developed economically. Pakistan has built its irrigation systems, and Pakistan has built its military weaponry with the help of the U.S. and it's those programs that. There's, there's an institutional memory of how do you make Pakistan better or good, and uh, the military uh, and, and the ruling elite generally think it's a landing with the U.S. So that's one of the pillars. Yeah. The second pillar is that everything this this has to happen through uh, through through the colonial state that they've inherited. They do not want to change. They they oh, they're fine with some uh, amendments or reforms within this structure, but they are not in favor of entirely revamping the system. Uh, th- there are some debates of using the parliamentary, uh, the presidential system, or, or I said the, the parliamentary system, uh, but that's that's about it. The, there's, uh, there isn't uh, a conversation of major reform. Uh, there's the conversations of the civil-military uh, balance of power, the military is becoming too large, maybe cut down their uh, budget, and there's a... There's a uh, there's an economy outside of this budget that the military has access to. Maybe it shouldn't have access to. So those are the only conversations that they have. But majorly, the voting elite agrees that uh, they will implement uh, whatever they implement will be through this state. And then there's uh, the third part that the voting elite agrees with is that there has to be a national identity. Uh, and, uh, 
that national identity uh, historically they've, they've used Islam as a narrative to bring people together and that became, became very early on uh, but probably it has roots in the formative story Jinnah used this narrative as well and it continued with uh, Ayub Khan and everybody else who came into power but recently uh, but the rulers have started to move away from this since Musharraf the ruling elite have been uh, moving away from this narrative of uh, uh, using Islam as the binding force. So they want to use uh, Pakistan's identity or its uh, uh, its traditional roots, its link with India and all everything except Islam to define this. So these are the three things that, that are close to the heart of the military and the establishment when they're making those decisions. Uh, and whoever they uh, are not, not signed with, generally... Uh, is doesn't align with them in some of these things, but m- I would posit that Imran wasn't doing any. Imran aligned with them in most of the things except for his narrative. So the narrative that's becoming popular in Pakistan is also threefold. It's uh, Pakistan wants the people of Pakistan want Islam to be at the center of whatever uh, ruling structure that they have. So there's a there's a narrative the the, the popular narrative is that the state is illegit, illegitimate. So for some it's because of its colonial history. Uh, for some it's because uh, the the judicial justice system doesn't deliver. Uh, there are some popular cases in point as you pointed out uh, in Ron Khan's uh, Khan's uh, experience with the, with the judiciary. But otherwise too, people uh, can wait for. Um, generations to get their cases sorted. So there's a consensus that the judiciary doesn't work. Then uh, the education system is completely broken down. People who have money, it's completely privatized. People who have money can have access to healthcare and uh, and education. So there's there's a consensus that, uh, and, and then uh, there's a narrative that uh, the, although there are soft powers that uh, do uh, accept Pakistan as a legitimate Islamic state, but the popular narrative is that it's unable to deliver on any uh, substantial Islamic uh, promises. For instance, it can't even get rid of uh, the interest. Uh, so the state has multiple times ruled against the interest, declared it haram all over again as if that's something we, we needed to learn. But the state is unable to even remove something so basic because it's, uh, uh, and we could get into that uh, eventually because it's entrenched with uh, within the the global economic system, that even uh, the, within this na- the system of nation state and global finance, you, you will be able to get rid of interest that easy. So, uh, because of those promises not being delivered for all of uh, the the stakeholders, the state is illegit. Then, uh, in terms of uh, the second point, is being pro West or being towards America. Uh, especially after 2001, but even before that, the Pakistani society has been moving away from, uh, uh, it's it's no, no more enamored with the Western ideals, and it's moving away from the promises of the liberal world. And uh, that's another fetch that's being created within the ruling establishment and the gender propagation. Uh, and uh, especially, uh, I would say that Warren Dare cemented that for most of the people, uh, it, even people within the ruling elite too. So I, I would say that even within the ruling elite, they're, they're factions, so it's not a monolith. 
one of the factions was led by Hamid Bo, General Hamid Bo, who was the head of ISI in, uh, in 1988. And he formed uh, uh, in, uh, an alliance IJI that actually created uh, the uh, Islami Jamuri Ittihad, it was called. And it's not Nawaz Sharif as uh, the ruler of Punjab uh, back then. So uh, this idea had, uh, it resonated with the ruling, a uh, part of the ruling establishment as well. But uh, after Musharraf, those uh, those parts of the, the ruling establishment were sidelined. So, uh, so the, sec- the second narrative that, but it still resonates with a lot of the people who were in the in the military, not not the generals, but uh, junior officers and the general population that uh, aligning with the West and leaning on the U.S. would not be fruitful in its, uh, especially after what uh, weren't there in Nadasa. That is cemented it for the people that depending on uh, the military, uh, depending on West and the U.S. and the global order will not unify us as an Ummah will not be able, would not allow us to implement Islam within our society or practice anything that is close to Islam. He poses as anti-American, whereas he uh, talks about the Riyasat Medina, which is an Islamic state, uh, and he uh, talks about the illegitimate state, and he's been consistent with it. He began with judiciary, then he moved to the, to the politicians, and now he's added the military establishment to the list. So that is what makes him popular. But you're, I, I gather in your tone that you're somewhat skeptical about whether he was, he had enlisted uh, upon this project of um, pushing back against the deep state. So let's talk about that. Um, the Pakistani establishment uh, allowed Imran Khan to come to power. They supported, I think that's a popular narrative which I would like you to address, but they supported him or at least enabled he, him and his movement to come to power. I think that's that's perfectly acceptable to say. But of course, he fell out of favor sometime during uh, his tenure. So talk me through that. What happened uh, to between Imran Khan and the political establishment for him to fall out of favor? Okay. So uh, I think I haven't sub- substantiated the fact that his, uh, although his narrative is what's on the street, like a populist narrative with He's saying what people want to hear, but he is with the establishment on the other points. So, for instance, he's he's uh, why is he's been saying that Don and Lou had a cipher and he kicked him out, but he was kicked out because of that. Uh, at the same time, he's been reaching out to the Americans and he's lobbying in the in America to make sure that he becomes acceptable for them, despite his uh, his street narrative. And uh, he's uh, even before that, he uh, enabled the Trump government. To broker a contract between them and, and the Taliban. Uh, he brought them, he helped them to bring the Taliban on the table. And even, even during the Biden administration, when they wanted to get out of Afghanistan, he facilitated the whole project uh, throughout. And when he went to meet Donald Trump, he was really happy and he said it's a bigger victory than uh, his World Cup. So he was on. Uh, he had agreed with the with the project of siding with the Americans, uh, or with with the ruling establishment, and then his idea of but, but this was uh, sorry to uh, to interrupt, but this is fine. But you know, Imran Khan became prime minister on the back of his criticism of drone strikes, war on terror, 
Afghanistan, you know, the uh, the war that had sucked out a lot of um, uh, Pakistan's energy and people and, and had created terrorism within its own borders. Uh, are you saying uh, that was no more than rhetoric or was there a substantial um, policy initiative that we could we could cite that's uh, anti-American? So so the part of the establishment that I said Hamid Gul was heading, uh, this was their opinion. Okay. So in early 2001, Hamid Gul was able to create a faction within, uh, so he headed that faction within the ruling establishment who had all these CNET narratives checked. They were anti-American. They wanted uh, Islam had uh, having a greater role in the region. Uh, they had this, uh, they coined the term of uh, Pakistan's strategic depth that went all the way up till uh, Central Asia. And uh, and they were very critical of the state, especially the part that uh, belonged to uh, the institution that was represented by uh, the, the, the seasoned politician. So this is something that Hamid would popularize. And Imran Khan, what he was recruited by Imran Khan, and there's ample evidence to to show that. And Imran Khan bought this and agreed to this, and he understood the fact that this is the popular narrative. If he wants to come into power, he will have to use this. But uh, 2001 was uh, the the switch in American policy towards Afghanistan uh, discontinued this project for uh, for at least a decade. So uh, Imran Khan fell out of favor of the establishment because Hamid Gul lost his power as the center of the the establishment uh, faction and Musharraf became more powerful. So Imran's, even though he continued with this narrative, his narrative and it was uh, resonating with the people on the street. But uh, Musharraf couldn't afford somebody who, and he, and he offered him, uh, he, he, Imran was willing to work with Musharraf too. But when he didn't get what he wanted to get, which is the prime, uh, the serial prime minister, uh, he continued with his uh, the populist narrative, which was to attack the American war. Uh, but when it came to uh, when the American policy shifted again, when they decided that they do not want to fight the war anymore and they want to pull back uh, their military, uh, at that time Iran was at the helm of the affairs. And he coordinated with the Americans, saying that we want a cordial relationship with the Americans. So in his narrative, he's been consistent in terms of saying when he talks to the international uh, community, which is America and, uh, uh, and the Security Council, he says that he wants to coordinate with them. So, uh, and that's what, what the ruling elite want. So he, he's not contradicting them. That's the only point I wanted to make. So why did he fall out of favor? If he's not contradicting them, if he uh, continues the policy initiatives or the uh, policy objectives of the of the majority of the establishment, what went wrong for Imran Khan? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, what went went wrong is that's also rooted in Pakistan's history. Mm. Pakistan's uh, uh, the woes of Pakistan that economic and uh, in a lot of dimensions. Yeah. Uh, so Pakistan, uh, with the past four governments, if, if we include this one, uh, the, all, the top agenda has been economics, fixing Pakistan's economic problem. And that is exactly what got Imran Khan uh, fall out of favor from, for, from the establishment. And Pakistan, so, so let, let me uh, try to unpack how Pakistan's uh, economy is uh, organized and what's the problem in 
So Pakistan has never had a local economic uh, thought. Uh, it is always always borrowed from the colonial ideas and the American world order to solve its problems. So as I mentioned initially, when Pakistan was created, it depended it depended on the World Bank and the IMF to create its its uh, agricultural system. Pakistan was actually worried at one point in time that it might not be able to produce enough food for for the people who are migrating from India. But uh, Pakistan was able to hit surplus in the 60s. How was, how was that possible? It was possible because Pakistan took loans from IMF and World Bank and implemented the Green Revolution uh, from the... Uh, it was a... Uh, it was spearheaded by the Americans. They gave them the seeds, the ecology, and they funded it to and to make sure that Pakistan increases its uh, agricultural yield. And uh, those neo those neoliberal programs that the World Bank and the IMF initiated created a consumer economy in Pakistan. Even though it did industrialize Pakistan in some ways, the Khan era, it increased the the agricultural yield, but it also created a huge. Uh, what do you say, a consumer economy, which Pakistan was not able to sustain. And now Pakistan has two basic problems. One is it has to import uh, almost everything that uh, that the people use, uh, which means there will always be a dollar deficit that Pakistan cannot fund. And then the state uses, uh, the state has a fiscal deficit, which means it is unable to generate enough money through taxes and whatnot. Uh, and it has to lean on its monetary policy, which is essentially printing money or taking loans. And uh, in Pakistan, even the printing money comes through taking loans. So the the commercial banks they uh, take uh, they take loans from the state bank. The state bank prints money, gives them the loan on a lower interest rate, and then those state, those commercial banks lend that money through the debits to the uh, to the exchequer. So there's there's a uh, there's a debt cycle Pakistan is trapped in for the, for the dollar economy and the the functioning of the state, and that's the problem that uh, the past four governments have been asked to resolve. And after the first two, and the since uh, the ruling elite is convinced that the only way to resolve this problem is by leaning on the American plan, which is working with the IMF, working with the World Bank, and. Uh, Imran Khan, although he did follow through with this on, in the first two years, and then, uh, but that made him exceptionally unpopular. Why? Uh, because uh, the the IMF plan breaks, so it's uh, it's hard to articulate the the kind of uh, destruction the IMF program brings in for for the masses. High taxation. Uh, it's poor public services. Not just that; it's incredible inflation. Incredible inflation because they devalue the money. They, uh, as you said, they increase taxes. They uh, they don't let the state subsidize anything, and they make sure that the state manages its monetary policy through the banks. Mm-hmm. Which means that Pakistan stays in that debt trap that uh, that it's uh, going to the IMF in the first place. But on top of that, it uh, makes sure that those interest-seeking banks stay afloat. But the people have to pay the price. So mm-hmm. if uh, if I could just give you an example to make you understand that yeah. uh, in the past five years, the price of a car has gone from from, from a normal sedan has gone from uh, twenty lakh rupees to almost fifty lakh rupees. 
<coughs> which is more than double. And 50 lakh rupees is so much money that if somebody uh, is a new, <coughs> new entrant into the labor force, they would not be able to save enough money, maybe in their lifetime, to buy a car. So that means this program just just in the past. So uh, this is the third government that will, uh, fourth government that will implement the IMF program consecutively. Mm. And just in in these five, six, seven years <coughs> of time, yeah. Pakistan's middle class has completely uh, disappeared. Right. This was during Imran Khan's tenure. This was during the period where, um, uh, where we see Imran Khan in power. So it began in during the you know uh, during Hakan Abbasi's rule uh, in his last year. It began then the recent IMF programs, and it continued through Imran Khan's tenure in the first two years, and then eventually COVID actually gave him a breather. So during COVID, IMF allowed uh, Pakistan to uh, not implement the policy prescriptions that they 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 were forcing Pakistan's hand uh, on and. Uh, he uh, he did what everybody else normally does, which is implement uh, the IMF program when they become too unpopular. You switch it back to printing money and uh, funding the consumer economy. That creates both those debts, which is the the fiscal deficit for the government and uh, the dollar debt because everything is imported and that pumping in that money creates that consumer demand that asks uh, the the market to import items from abroad. Mm-hmm. So uh, him doing that exacerbated the situation. So he did that for a year when IMF had given them a brief there, but he continued doing it because uh, he had become really unpopular and he had to depend even more on the establishment for even uh, smaller maneuvers within within the parliamentary setup. And uh, when the military saw that, just like all the other players that they've uh, backed, he is unwilling to take the blame or to become unpopular and implement the American plan of uh, going with the IMF. So they decided that uh, they shouldn't be a switch in government. And they thought him being uh, there, uh, then both of them being in the, on the same seat, it wouldn't, it would, it would be a, a bloodless, if I may say, transition. And they would be able to bring him back because they, they aren't comfortable with the other party anyway. Uh, and the other party is uh, uh, within the military, uh, if I may say, their constituency. That means the officers and uh, and their families. They resonate. The narrative that resonates most with is the narrative that Hamid Gul came up with, which is anti-American, which is uh, anti-political. Uh, uh, historic political rulers, which is BMLN, People's Party. Uh, and uh, it, it, it is a narrative where uh, the identity of Islam has a role to play. So because the military establishment wanted him out and he was taking the, he was empowering the narrative of the street and the people involved are within the military, he became really difficult to remove. And that is what we see eventually play out. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the, the common narrative, of course, is that the Americans forced him out. And, um, uh, you know, Donald Wu and the cipher has become... Uh, uh, dominant in in this story of Imran Khan's fall, your argument seems to suggest that uh, that may have played a part, but actually uh, it was mostly down to domestic considerations. He fell out of favor with the army uh, because he was no longer willing to implement the economic policy prescriptions uh, of the army. Yes, so uh, he wasn't able to. So the army thinks. The, the establishment thinks and the capitalists who are associated with the military establishment think that neoliberal policies are going to resolve their woes. Why do they think that? I mean, it's been years <laughs> under this IMF World Bank prescription and, and the economy is, is flailing. So uh, uh, their, their idea of how the world works is very rudimentary, I would say. Really? So they, in, their, in their experience siding with the Americans has given them dividends. And that's, that's, that's the empirical evidence uh, uh, to, to, to say you do whatever the Americans say. So, uh, so for instance, they, they modernized their military with the American aid oh, during the Zia era. They were able to resolve a lot of problems for uh, their, their domestic economic problems when they received aid. Oh. And they were able to industrialize during the uh, the Khan era. All of them happened because of the American And then they see uh, across the border towards India. Yeah. They see that America once uh, has a greater role for India in the region uh, against China. And that is what's uh, making the Indian economy become so large. Because India is uh, America is willing to give India a share in the global supply chain. And that is what's uh, making it export uh, so much and develop a domestic economy. And they say that uh, China was also able to develop because it was America allowed it to be a part of the global supply chain. And Taiwan also developed because of this. And South Korea also developed because of this. So if we lean towards uh, towards the Americans and they, they, they will give us a share of this global economy. But what they do not understand is or they underestimate is that uh, China didn't really follow through with the neoliberal policy they were acting. Uh, uh, so uh, they, they don't appreciate the, the things that China didn't do and are still willing to, um, to follow what the Americans have prescribed. But do you think that Imran Khan understood that? Uh, because you've, you've ascribed the word rudimentary to the policies of the deep state, but at least in some of Imran Khan's speeches where he talks about China, uh, he refers to the China model and he talks about at the United Nations, I remember, General Assembly, 
uh, he talked about Shanghai versus New York and was making a comparison between the potholes in the New York streets and and of the shining buildings in in the in China and and maybe there is another model that we can we can subscribe to um was that a recognition by Imran Khan that things are uh that that is far more granular and far more uh far more advanced maybe than uh, as you said the ruling establishment so this is this is also a popular this has been a popular narrative within part of the military establishment that uh, siding with China might resolve these problems. So the military uh, did move towards China in its arms development because they thought the Americans weren't dependable uh, partners in in the military's uh, 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 armament uh, development. So they did side side with China, and there there, there are reports of even uh, Mushar, during Musharraf's era uh, initiating the Belt and Road in the Woodward project with the Americans. So it's something that the military also has been thinking about. Uh, and they thought that uh, China would be able to, would, would be a, a good partner for them to defend on, especially when dealing with India. But the military, that, uh, so that's that's where the uh, the cooperation with the Chinese ends. It's building the military infrastructure, it's getting the JF-17 spirit and building a few uh, other things. When it comes to actual policies, Imran Khan's policies were capitalist and neoliberal as they get. Uh, whether it was initiating uh, the the health card, which is warning on the American uh, insurance, insurance exactly. Whether it was privatizing schools, even if you look at narratives of, it, of people who were right hand men like uh, Fawad Jawdi, then uh, who would say that the state. Uh, the the state is not supposed to run petrol pumps, which is a neoliberal idea of say, making a case for privatizing yeah. uh, national resources. And they were also making a case to privatize uh, the steel mills and the NEA. So uh, in Ron Hunt's policy prescriptions have been consistently neoliberal, but the narrative does sometimes say that he wants to use other motives, but they don't play out in action. Mm. But then how does that then um, collide with the Riyasat Medina model, the Medina Islamic model that he talked about? And remember one speech where he discussed the first welfare state was established by the Prophet Ali Salatu Wasalam. So how do we tie that uh, that uh, that imperative with uh, with um, uh, what you describe there of, of a very neoliberal premised uh, tenure of of Imran Khan? So uh, if you uh, I, I would say this has been uh, a battle of all all the populists who have tried to use the narrative of uh, uh, an Islamic state, whether it was Mahdi Muhammad, who Imran uh, Khan says that he's learned so much from, whether it's Erdogan uh, of uh, uh, Turkey, or was it uh, whether it was Imran Khan. That they've tried to nationalize the, the Islamic project. They have to They've tried to limit the Islamic project within a nation state, and that that in itself is uh, it's it's an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't work. Uh, so, by its very nature, if you stick with the Westphalian idea, if you stick with the the global financial institutions, if you do not want to confront uh, the American model at its very core, at its uh, uh, at its very objectives. 
you would not be able to carve a place where you can actually implement Islam. And uh, Islam cannot be, you can't pick and choose. For instance, uh, even though he said Riyasat al-Madina, but he wanted to model the parliamentary democracy of Britain. Uh, he wanted uh, the welfare state of the Scandinavians. And he wanted the industrialization of the Chinese. So none of this makes sense. So nobody, uh, all of these are the four different models that he's referring to, which uh, gives credence to the idea that he's just being a populist. He's just saying whatever resonates with the people. And when it comes to policy prescriptions, he, he has, his team has no ideas. He has no ideas. They end up depending on the IMF and the World Bank to tell them what is possible in this world. So when it came to actually implementing things, that's that's where, where he was stuck. Right. I want to go back to an earlier point you made about the composition from within the army. And you described, uh, especially at the time of Hamid Gul, that there was opposition to the westernized policies and, and maybe the street narrative was more, more fairly reflected within this schism or this sector of, of the army. So the army is not a monolith. I think that's the point you made. Uh, is that still the case today? Do we still have divisions within the army that are uh, that are tussling for uh, for power? And um, uh, how does that play out when it comes to Imran Khan's incarceration? So uh, the military is a very organized institution, and it has there are some things that there is an agreement on. One is that the Pakistani state is the military. That's an agreement within the army. And uh, they don't disagree on this. Uh, but like any organization, there are personal uh, ambitions that people want to get to the top. And there's always that in fight. Yeah. Uh, and then you could also, just like the society, you could broadly divide uh, the military into uh, inclinations and proclivities. For instance, there is a portion of the army that is Islamically inclined. You'd find people who regular in their prayers. Uh, you'd find people who were crying for Baza. Uh, you'd find people who are uh, who weren't happy with the Pakistan's leaning uh, towards the Americans in the war if they weren't there. And then there are people who were nationalists who would say that our focus has to be in Pakistan. So uh, you, if America says Kashmir cannot be the central issue, we'll have to let it go. Uh, if uh, saving the economy means and not teaching about Gaza, and that's what we're going to do. If uh, having JF Thunders uh, means that China will supply them, supply them to the Myanmar, uh, uh, to Myanmar, and they'll use it to kill the Rohingyas, we with it. So there's a nationalist uh, segment that uh, its focus is Pakistan. So uh, and that's them. And then there's a large portion of people who are just careerists. They they're in the military because that's institution that gives you the most perks so it's it's which you're in the military it's like living in standard deviation if i were to borrow imam khan's words your uh yeah, everything is paid for from your teenage to until you die uh whether it's your whether you when you get sick you'll get the top uh healthcare facilities in pakistan or even if you you if you want to be flown outside pakistan you know that that option's also available your uh, education, top-notch education is you you get it at an extremely subsidized rate. And then uh, your uh, even the money that your disposable income will be matched with the inflation increment that uh, the country has. So uh, whether it's, and you get a piece of land to build your houses on, 
uh, and uh, you get agricultural land when you when you retire. So it's uh, it, it, your 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 life is set if you're part of the military. And as you uh, will go higher up the ranks, you get more perks. Part of the military is careerists. So within these three broad uh, factions, if I uh, sections, if I may call them, there are factions within who compete uh, for for position of power. So uh, in, uh, uh, there, there are few things that all of them agree on. One is that the state outside of the military is incapable of uh, dealing with a lot of things: uh, foreign policy domestic security and now economy has also been added to the list because it's a national security issue so those are things they think they have to be a patron of that's an agreement across the board and then there's an agreement across the board that the politicians are incapable incompetent and uh, uh and they have the vested interest to steal and loot when they come into power so that's that's also a broad narrative that's uh, no, that's acceptable within the military. So when Imran Khan said uh, out of favor uh, of uh, General Bajwa, there was a substantial number of people, even in the higher ranks, who supported Imran's uh, narrative yeah. that bringing back Nawazis and uh, People's Party will not resolve this problem. We have a consensus that they are one of the causes of our problem. So it was very difficult for the, for uh, for Bajwa to convince the the military generals who who had retired since uh, Amigo's time and their fam their family and their extended family and a lot of uh, people who were still in the military. It was very difficult for him to so he had to strong arm the military to make sure. Huh. Nah. So uh, people's pensions were cancelled. Right. Yeah, people would try it. Uh, people would let go. Uh, there were there were there were court martials against people who defied orders. So uh, this was turned into a national security issue, especially the the Nanfei incident where uh, um, where there was some violence on the street because of the support uh, in Ram because of this clash. Mm-hmm. So uh, they uh, Bajwa tried to turn this into uh, sorry uh, Hafiz Saab tried to turn this into a national security issue and then use this as a pretext to force people even within the military to hush them uh, but i would say uh, even though he was successful in hushing them there's a lot of, there's immense pressure on him to uh, uh to not be so any handed with the not or or he he might not so he's having a hard time so there's still support for imran within imran in this these three narratives that i've uh, that, that i've spoken about within the military within the military okay and the relationship between the military and the United States. Um, again, uh, during the Musharraf era, we were uh, conditioned almost to believe that uh, the army is in effect a puppet of the United States, almost very similar to the Egyptian army and its close relationship with the Americans. I mean, how would you describe that relationship? Uh, I, I would say the Americans imported the Pakistani modern to, uh, to Egypt, <laughs> not the other way around. Uh, so... Uh, Pakistan is always uh, so. I would say this region was exceptionally important for uh, for for the U.S. to control. And uh, when Pakistan was created, it was uh, right after World War II when the Cold War was taking up, and 
this region was uh, Asia. There was a there was a slogan within Pakistan, Asia Lalhead, which means Asia is communist essentially. And the the communist bloc that the American treated as one bloc was becoming really strong within this area. And Pakistan was able to build its case to be America's forefront ally to resolve this dynamic. And America's uh, uh, experience with Yugoslavia told them that uh, there there's a chance that they can break this coalition. And they used Pakistan to bring China. Uh, they hadn't even recognized China back then. Taiwan was China. Uh, and uh, mainland China didn't even exist. Uh, so they used Pakistan to break the, the communist bloc. And uh, uh, so so that's that's the that's when the relationship start, uh, I'd say started cementing for Pakistan, which is Pakistan became the forefront ally and India because uh, so let, let me let me uh, go back and say this that when when America uh, started heading the the world order, it asked France and Britain to let go of all its uh, uh, colonies. Uh, and because America wanted its own control, even though it portrayed itself as the same year an anti-colonial force, but it wanted to uh, implement a neo-colonial model where America bought the larger share of things. Uh, but India, uh, but the, Britain had the uh, the, sav- the political savviness to uh, not just divide the land in a way where um, uh, where America wouldn't be able to take the whole pie, but also. Uh, create a non-aligned movement, which it uh, asked India to join in on. Uh, that allowed this part of the area to stay within the control of the Commonwealth of or, or, or Britain. So Pakistan, from the very get-go, in order to deal with India, in order to build its local institutions that, uh, that were lopsided or truncated when it inherited from the colonial times, and uh, an economy that was... Uh, uh, that was very primary in its nature. In order to do all of that, Pakistan had to lean on to the Americans, and that relationship cemented very early on because Pakistan's uh, and ruling structure was military run in India. And within the first ten years, the military was able to overpower the civil bureaucracy anyway. And the soldier reforms that were put in place from the very beginnings defined a relationship with the Americans. So. Uh, it's uh, uh, so people in Pakistan un- unless they're trained unless they go to West Point or uh, initially for Sandhurst or now it's at West Point and other uh, institutions un- unless they're trained over there they're not considered uh, good uh, soldiers good officers so it's a very deeply entrenched relationship that Pakistan military had with the American and uh, how about China? Because again, in the West, it's very commonplace now to think about Pakistan as a close ally, if not the closest ally of China, or at least an important asset, that word's even used, of China. We have the CPEC corridor. We have, you know, Pakistan has been at the center of, of, its, uh, of, of China's economic uh, infrastructure, uh, the trade relationships between uh China and and Pakistan have grown in the last uh, decade. And um, so we have this very strong relationship, and that's within the context of an international situation where um, America is threatened by the rise of China, its economic rise and its military rise. 
Um, how does Pakistan fit into that battle between America and China? So the Pakistani establishment has been grappling with this idea of uh, uh, using China and Russia as a balancing power towards uh, them leaning on uh, on the Americans. But uh, the dominant faction, especially, and the others uh, within other factions, there's a consensus that China isn't willing to throw its weight against the Americans in any anything that conflicts America. So the only use that Pakistan has could have uh, with this, the, the only utility Pakistan would have with this relationship with China is uh, dealing with India. That's that's the extent of it. Uh, they uh, they've used uh, they agreed to and uh, went with the plan of the one by one project. Primarily because the state didn't have enough resources to build its infrastructure, and uh, the the Americans weren't willing to spend that money on them. And China used the exact same model that the <clears throat> that the Western uh, investment the, the Western investment model. They used the exact same model, but they were willing to invest. So uh, the Pakistani military agreed. Uh, they they even created a. A separate division to protect the American, uh, the, the the Chinese investments within Pakistan, especially Balochistan and areas where, and they they have difficulty controlling. So, uh, uh, so the military does think that China is a role to play, but not as a balancing force. They do not see China as uh, as a state that can counter the pressures America puts on them. So they only see them as partners that who can develop. Uh, the infrastructure uh, by giving them votes. That is the extent of it. And, and uh, there's a there's a bit of truth to this as well. Yeah. For instance, uh, Pakistan's major 30% of Pakistan debt is to China, and Pakistan has has an energy uh, has an energy problem where most of its energy is uh, produced in dollars, uh, and it is paid in rupees. So there can never be a situation unless uh, the pro- produce of uh, unless there is an export surplus, you would never be able to pay, pay that dollar deficit back. And almost 25% of that uh, monthly payment is to China. So China has uh, followed uh, the, the steps of the other uh, capitalists who built ITPs and had contracts of uh, being paid in capacity. That's something very interesting. So uh, in whenever somebody buys a service, you pay for what you get, right? But in Pakistan, they are independent power plants who get paid for their capacity to produce. Whether they produce anything or not, they'll get the amount of money for the capacity of production they have, and that too in dollars, while the economy that those power plants are serving in peace. So uh, so the experience has also been of a capitalist who is using either its access capacity to uh, to offload its, its access capacity, capacity within Pakistan markets, and is willing to help Pakistan with some of its military equipment, but it doesn't go beyond that. Uh, whenever Pakistan is needed any support to posture or to resist any demands of the Americans, China hasn't uh, offered any. Uh, so the military doesn't. The military sees China as a lightweight in the international economy. Uh, it doesn't see it as a as a partner in that Um Earlier on, we spoke about the economy of Pakistan and its failure 
for decades and its inability or the inability of the establishment to move away from this neoliberal capitalist model, uh, the IMF World Bank dependent model and how that's created uh, you know, the, the anguish on the streets of, of Pakistan with hyperinflation and, and, and with um, um, very poor public services. Is there a movement in Pakistan against this? Um, is there a is there a groundswell of opinion? Okay, yes, tonally there is, of course, but uh, are there academics and thinkers who are uh, uh, who are trying to propose alternatives to uh, this Western model? So I, I'd say there's a growth of <clears throat> creativity. There's there's absolutely no uh, alternatives at the deep already. There, there's there are only two narratives that are uh, there's only actually one narrative that's spoken about in in the in the power corridors and that is which how much of the American clan would even remember. Uh Although there there are some conservative voices, especially in in the uh, in the Navasi, who uh, who want to hold the American hand but also not let it make the moves when they're implementing the IMF plan, the, the ones led by Assad uh, and some uh, some old capitalists. But uh, but th- that voice, it, and there, there's an alternative voice in Mr. Ismail within the New is where that who wants to follow through with the American plan. But apart from them, there, there's, um, there's some socialist voices who make some claims. But other than that, there's... Within the corridors, there's absolutely no conversation of this. But on the streets, I would say that there are people who do propose Islamic solutions to meet her. For instance, the idea of Pakistan's daughter deficit, that's primarily, so there is a conversation that Pakistan cannot be, at least in its initial stages, Pakistan cannot be a consumer economy to imported items if it has to survive. So there's, you cannot manage this by increasing prices. That's not, the, that's not, if you do this, you destroy, uh, it's like trying to help somebody with, uh, with, uh, with cancer. You, you, you have to be, it's a delicate situation. You can't chop off a limb and say the cancer is resolved, right? So you have to be more, uh, there are steps to the procedure you will have to take. So the first step has to be that you become, you stop depending on the dollar, uh, you stop depending on the dollar for your energy needs. That has to be the first step. And you have to, uh, uh, you have to use local resources to build uh, an ecosystem for at least those things that are essential. For example, so there is a voice that says that Pakistan has to be Food self-sufficient. We even importing wheat, like right now. We importing cotton to produce our yarns. So those things that can be produced, that can be grown in Pakistan, they have to be grown within Pakistan. And then uh, those things that that are that are required to uh, the the energy that is required to run the industry that has to be in a local currency as well. So, for instance, uh, you know, there is a voice that says that if we were to integrate the economy of Central Asia, Iran, Afghanistan with Pakistan, like a single economy, then you would be able to deal in the same currency when you buy coal, gas, and oil, and water resources to generate the energy. And that's the only, if, if we have these two things in place, you will, ha- you will uh, be in a position 
to bargain with the Western world to give you a share of uh, uh, of the global supply chain. Unless this is in place, you you have no bargaining chips, and whatever models you implement, they get you deeper into uh, into the debt traps that Pakistan is in. Ashibai, we have a lot of students who come to Britain to study economics from Pakistan. Are you telling saying to me that they go back to Pakistan and for another generation they, for want of a better word, destroy their country? That's an unfortunate reality. That uh, there, there are people who have studied from LSE, LSE and uh, Harvard and Ch- the Chicago School, and but but the policy prescription they, they're stuck in in the, within the capitalist framework. You find people who are either uh, fans of Milton Friedman or who are fans of uh, John Maynard Keynes. So so you wouldn't find and both ideas within Pakistan. They they talk about either it's. Uh, uh, using uh, it's privatizing and uh, use, uh, letting go of all the infrastructure that's ca- causing Pakistan fiscal woes, or they they talk about printing money to build infrastructure. That those are the only things they speak about. And uh, the the problem with this is that we need to we need to uh, if if we were to take uh, if we were to give credence to the voice of the street. Which is that nothing apart from Islam is acceptable. There's a part of the narrative that says the state is illegitimate because it doesn't help them practice Islam, or rather, it impedes it uh, creates problems for them when they're practicing Islam. So, if that uh, narrative is given any voice, or if it's uh, taken into into consideration, the Keynesian and uh, neoliberal ideas will only build a society. That talks about you know, and uh, talks about employment. That means uh, living a life where people work more than forty or fifty hours a week. They displaced to urban areas. They lose their contact with their with their immediate families. They uh, spend uh, years, maybe half of their life, gaining an education and not getting married on time. They, so you you would uh, and and all of this is financed through an interest based uh, framework. So you no matter what prescription they they put forward, it makes sure that uh, a social uh, an Islamic social life cannot be practiced. Where silahami is impossible, where where attending funerals is impossible, where making sure that your the five prayers that you do are at the mosque uh, close to your house is impossible. Or making sure that you are connected with your extended family is impossible. So, uh, even even if these uh, policy prescriptions were to pay dividends of whatever they promised that they could achieve, they wouldn't be able to uh, create an Islamic society. And that is where the the, the undercurrent would always reject any of these prescriptions. So, even if they were to resolve inflation, which I would posit that it's impossible to do with these prescriptions even if they were to industrialize Pakistan. But what, what they would do it at a cost, the people are not willing to bear that. And that is that current is becomes becoming stronger and stronger. And it's very evident in the way that people have supported Imran Fan in his uh, in his call for the Medina, Riyasat Dumadi. So Kashif, there is a, a a need to establish a policy think tank in, in Pakistan where like minded people like you come together and and develop new initiatives and new thinking about uh, our economic and political problems, probably. 
Uh, I, I agree. I agree with that. That uh, so I would posit that uh, the so so the I I I said the four historical things that uh, impact the uh, the Pakistani politics. The fourth one is Pakistan's uh, connection with uh, with the Mughal Empire and and uh, the Islamic heritage of this place. And uh, and the custodian of those of that heritage is is the ulama. And unfortunately, the ulama have uh, have allowed themselves to disconnect from this reality, and they are the, they are the people who least understand how the world is operating. And I think there is an immense need to to facilitate these people who understand Islam in terms of ahkam sharia, but are not well versed in how the world is playing this out. And how can they be, become a force of guiding people of what is the what is the Islamic principle in following certain uh, uh, certain uh, initiative? So I completely agree. There's a need to develop uh, develop a faith tank that is that allows people to develop a framework where they can understand the moves the world is making, the moves uh, people are making within Pakistan. And I think we as a whole, as a society. It's not just we will know, but I think they, they can play a major role in this. We as a society have to become politically savvy enough so that we can think of a place outside of the world order where we can implement Islam and uh, and, and not not just Islam, but be connected with them. So uh, it, it always, uh, the the saying of Rabia ibn Amr, the Sahabi, it, it always it, it it keeps ringing in my head when uh, when when the governor of uh, Persia asked him why what are you here for uh, I, I paraphrase him and uh, he wanted to understand that whether it's worldly gains that they're after and if that's that's what they want we said we can offer you that and he trampled those riches with his spear when he walked towards him and he said. That we are here to turn people from worship, the, the slaving of people, with, we're here to make people slaves of Allah, from slaves of people. And that's what the Islamic project is all about. Unless the people who are sincere to such a cause, who want to be slaves of Allah, unless they're empowered enough to see how the world is operating and how the world is making sure that you stay slave to other boys. Uh, other qualities, other superpowers, where people within within your society who hold the reins of power think that Razib is is not Allah, it's America, where they think that uh, it's the Chinese who will you win you back to it's not not the Malaika who Allah Swan Taala sends, and it's uh, uh, it's the American machinery that makes sure that people are fed, and it's not the Barakah from Allah Swan So it's people who who are uh, true to these uh, to these beliefs? Who need to become uh, politically aware so that they can transition the whole society? And I'm, I'm very confident that uh, since I since I mentioned that even within the power corridors, there are people who are sincere to Islam, but they think that it's a, Islam is a separate domain, and these policy matters is a separate domain. So even they need to be educated. So I'm, I'm completely on board with your research. 
Rabbi Kashif Gilani, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. Jazakallah Thank you very much for your time. Oh, yeah. It was a pleasure talking. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkingmuslim.com, to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.